worship. Secondly, the challenge of worship. And lastly, the ob object of our worship. So first, a life of worship. Look, I mean, immediately when we think about this word hallelujah, we see it literally translated from the beginning. Praise the Lord. And then it's bookended at the end with praise the Lord. So at the beginning and the end, we see this sense of praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And as we've gone through this entire sermon series in Summer in the Psalms, what I love and appreciate about the Psalms is that it gives you the entire human experience and all the emotions that come with it that we live out every single day of our lives, don't we? I mean, think about what we've even touched upon this summer for the last eight weeks. We've addressed loneliness, depression, anger and sadness, lamenting, crying out to God for help. We've dealt with pain, death, sickness, hopelessness, to repentance and forgiveness. We've addressed shame and doubt, grief, and the fears that we experience as we look to the hills that we observed last week. These are the human experiences and emotions that we experience every day that the book of the Psalms addresses for us. We can be real, we can be honest, because here the psalmists are honest with how they feel, with the range of emotions and experiences that they deal with every single day of their lives. And what's so fascinating about this book is that the last five psalms deal with this idea of the Hillel songs, these praises to the Lord. And what's so unique and so that stood out for me is that this encapsulates who we are in our lives as we live day to day. One, song, one commentator, Derek Kidner, as he looked at this psalm said, the psalms are a miniature of our story as a whole, which will end in unbroken blessing and delight. They are un, uninterrupted notes of praise to God as if to teach us that it is indeed the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I mean, you think about the church and these psalms, and what other space in our lives do we both celebrate and we grieve and lament in the same space? Todd Billings, a professor up in Western uh, Seminary, he said, only in the church do we celebrate the new birth of a child, and the same day we prayerfully walk with another through the valley of death. It's all in the same space. Namely, a space which does not repress our current encounters with our current struggles, but brings them before the face of God. You see, the Psalms, what they do is, in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our fears, in the midst of our shame and sadness, we see that the Psalms also provide us opportunities to praise and exclaim hallelujah in the midst of the pain and suffering. One of my favorite songs is by Leonard Cohen, and it's called Hallelujah. And there's this beautiful, beautiful phrase that he writes in the midst of his verse that says, I'm trying to find it. Where is it? Oh, love is not a victory march. It is a cold and it's a broken Hallelujah. Isn't that beautiful? 
that even in the midst of our praises and our hallelujah and what we worship, that it can also be broken. See, the connection of God to the reality of hurt begins to be the ground of praise. We can praise and exclaim hallelujah and yet be in the midst of absolute brokenness and pain and fear and shame that each and every single one of us experiences. You see, in other words, worship grows from the reality of our hurt, our pain, and God meeting us there. Not from when everything is just fine and dandy with us. God meets us at the point of the broken hallelujahs that we experience every single day. The other thing we have to note here in 146 is that first word, praise the Lord, and the last is a command. It's a command that we are actually called to praise. Now, when I was younger, you know, I grew up as a pastor's kid. And if you stick around with us long enough, you'll hear about these stories. But one of these things that, because I grew up in a pastor's home, was that we would have family worship every single night. But I hated it. And the reason I hated it was because my mom thought that you could do a two for one. Meaning, we could do family worship and read from scripture and sing and pray, but also I could get my Korean lesson on. <laughs> so we would read scripture in English, and then I have to read it in Korean. And I hated it because I, could, I understood and read through my mom that this wasn't about family worship. It was about trying to get me to learn Korean. And I would rebel. And there might be revisionist history, but I remember almost every single night, one of us three siblings getting up, crying out of anger and leaving. It wasn't a good thing. But one thing that stuck out for me was that there was this one song that would sing every single time. And maybe some of you know it, but it was praise him, praise him. Praise him in the morning, praise him in the evening, praise him when the sun goes down. And we would sing that every single day as we started our family worship. And you know what that did to me? It was formative. As we continued to make that a part of our liturgy every single day, it formed my heart to always sing that when I went through hard times, when I went through difficulties. It would just pop up into my head. And as I sang it in my head, sometimes willingly, sometimes not, it began to work in my heart to understand that God has given us this command that is absolutely beautiful that we could sing even in the midst of our broken hallelujahs. And that's what I want us to understand that in the life of worship, the sadness and grief that the Psalms portray, there's a beauty that God gives to us that we can still sing and praise and worship. But it's not easy. And that brings us to the second point here, which is the challenge of our worship. See, what, what is the challenge of our hallelujahs? We're given that right away in verse 3. The psalmist connects worship and what we find worthy to this verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. What are those princes in our lives? I mean, for some of us, it might be literally a prince, maybe Prince Harry or Prince Edward. 
But here, for most of us, it's not that. What princes represents for us, it represents someone that is influential or has power. Now, what I want us to understand is, it's not that we want to praise and find our worth and we want to like spend all our time with someone that's influential. What that does for us is why we want to trust in princes because they will give us what we want, right? Because if someone has power and influence, those are the people that will get us exactly what we need. Let me give an example. I read this just recently. There's a food critic by the name of Paul Grinberg. And he set out to hit the top 100 restaurants in the world. He started this in 2011. But there's one that he hasn't been able to go to. He's hit the 99 top 100 restaurants in the world, but there was one that he couldn't. He writes, I tra I've traversed mountain roads, been lost in fog, snowed in, stranded in, secured speeding tickets in Spain, France, Switzerland, and Germany. I've crisscrossed time zones and fought exhaustion. Yet there is one last restaurant on my list. And it's this restaurant in Japan in Tokyo called Sushi Saito. An eight-seat restaurant in Tokyo. And it's only by private membership that you can go and eat. So either you have to dine with someone who has membership. Or that person who has membership has to call you in for a reservation to sit in on this. And guess what this Paul Grinberg has done? He's tried to hit up all the investors that he knows from Goldman Sachs, from investment banks, to Toyota makers and Honda makers, car auto, automakers, hedge funds, American Express, Morgan Stanley, all to no luck. And what that showed me was that's exactly what we do. We want to hit up those influential, powerful people so that we could get what we want that we think is worthy of worship. I mean, you think about all that's happening in the news. Elon Musk, founder of Tesla, and one of the greatest innovators of technology right now. In a New York Times article, an interview he ran with them, he said, the most difficult, it's been the most difficult and painful year. And in that interview, he revealed that he's been working 120 hours every single week. And so from one entrepreneur to another, Adriana Huffington, the one who founded Huffington Post, shot back and wrote an open letter to him saying that you cannot keep working 120 hours. You need time to refresh and refuel. But in a tweet back to her, and very timely, at 2.30 a.m. in the morning, he said this, Ford and Tesla are the only two American car companies to avoid bankruptcy. I just got home from the factory. You think this is an option? It is not. And yet what's so ironic is he is leaking like crazy. From the tweet that he sent when the, um, when the Thai soccer team was trying to be rescued to the government scrutinizing his investments and what he's done to two large lawsuits that are out to get him. This man is leaking. And yet these are the people that we want to put our trust in. And what we see is that you will not find salvation in these princes. Another example, Tom York, he's a front man for Radiohead. In an interview, he said, I thought when I got 
to where I wanted to be, everything would be different. I'd be somewhere else. I thought it'd be all white, fluffy clouds, and then I got there, and I'm still here. And this interviewer then said, well, why in the end have you done what you've done? And he replied, it's filling the hole. That's what everyone does. And she asked, well, what happened to that hole? And Tom York said, it's still there. You think about musicians, and they have everything you would ever want. The lifestyle, groupies. You would get every satisfaction you would ever want physically, emotionally. And yet that hole has not been filled. For some of us who love KD's shoes, who love sports, NBA superstar Kevin Durant was asked about his spike in technical fouls last year and ejections. And this is what Kevin Durant said. It's just my emotions and passions for the game. After winning that championship, I learned that much hadn't changed. I thought it would fill a certain void. It didn't. You see, we think the people that we want to put our trust in, these princes who have influence and power, will give us what we want. And yet, what's so ironic is these people are also trying to find their princes, trying to fill that void. And they haven't found it. See, the problem with the princes that we worship and we try to put our worship or our trust in is that they do not last. It does not satisfy. It is not sustaining. And in verse 4, we see that when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. I love that imagery. That once he dies, his plans are no longer. He's done. He's gone. And it brings us back to Genesis 3.19. From dust you are, and dust you shall return. And so the question for us is, where do we find our worth? Where do we find our worship? Who do we sing our praises to? And it brings us to our last point, the object of our worship. Because here we find the answer. Look at verse 5. This is the last beatitude, this blessing that we see in the Psalms. How are we to be happy? Blessed literally means happy. Happy is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. That's the ultimate object of where we find our worth. It's not in princes, and I've shown you a litany of people. But it's in our God. And from verses 6 through nine, we give, we are given the reasons why. Just follow along in verse six. Why? Because he's the creator. While everything else dies, he's the one who has made us and made creation. Who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. Who keeps faith forever. What that means is just basically he is faithful forever to eternity. And then verse seven, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, He is the one who loves justice and pursues it, who cares for the poor and the hungry. The Lord is the one who sets the prisoners free. We see he is the liberator for us. The the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. He's not only our lover, but he's also the one who sustains us and lifts us up. Verse 9, the Lord watches over the sojourners. 
He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. You know what I get from this entire verses 6 through 9? That God absolutely cares for the destitute, the needy, the poor. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's four groups of people that God absolutely cares for. It's the widow, it's the orphan, it's the poor, and it's the immigrant. And we get all of that here. And what we see is God is the one who frees, liberates, brings freedom, feeds the hungry. He's the one who brings justice and mercy. He's the creator of the universe. It is in stark contrast to verse 3 and 4. Do you see that? Whereas princes are the ones that have, who cannot sustain it, who will die and go back to dust, and his plans will perish, we see that God is the one who will live forever, who is faithful to the end, that he is the creator, the most powerful. And he's also the one who comes alongside the brokenhearted, to the needy. To those who are destitute. He's the one who brings hope. He's the one who brings life. He's the one who brings sustenance to us. And that's why we are to put our hope and our worship and our worth in the Lord himself. Eventually what dominates our innermost thoughts and imaginations comes forth as that to which we give our allegiance and devotion, right? So here's the question. Do you love what ensnares you and enslaves you, these princes, that end up finding no, nothing to fill that void? Or will we go to the one who liberates and frees us and cares about justice and practices mercy you see, and that's what we need. And I don't know if you caught this, but in verse 3, what we do is we try to find these princes, these sons of man. But there was another son of man, right? And that was Jesus. Seventy times he refers to himself as a son of man in the Gospels. And this son of man, God himself came down, not only as a son of man, but the son of God. And when he began his ministry, this is what he did. He went into the temple, synagogue, in front of all the Israelites. He opened up the Bible to Isaiah 61. And here we get that here from what we read, verses 6 through 9. And this is what he said from Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But do you know he leaves out one part, mid-sentence, that finishes with God bringing vengeance to the earth. He doesn't say that. He stops right there and doesn't re read the rest of it, which refers to the bringing the vengeance of God to earth. Why? Because no longer does Jesus come to bring vengeance, but he takes on the vengeance of God upon himself on the cross. He takes the wrath that we deserved 
and places that upon himself. And ultimately, that is the reason why he is worthy of our worship and why we can sing praises to him because he has taken that vengeance upon himself rather than on you. And that is where praise comes from, that in the midst of pain and in the midst of the blows of life, we know that Christ ultimately took the hardest blow and took that wrath upon himself for us. And that is what we are to do as well unto others. We are supposed to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God from Micah 6, 8. And in that way, not only do we sing praises to the Lord, but as we practice mercy and justice to those who are destitute, to the poor, the needy, the fatherless, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, we are singing praises to God because of what Christ has done for you and for me. Let me close with this story. Many years ago, I was a college student, and um, this one summer in particular, I went back home to Chicago to help out in the youth group of my dad's church. And in that summer, I was in charge of these group of young sophomores, sophomore boys. And there was this new kid who just started coming over the summer. And he was very closed off from the beginning. He didn't talk much. He was an introvert. Didn't say anything when we got together in our small groups and talked about the Bible study and shared prayer requests. But one thing he did love was golf. He was on the high school varsity golf team. And so I loved golf, or I thought I did, or I thought I was good. And we would go out and we would golf. That slowly developed a relationship where he began to trust me. And in one of our Bible studies together, as we went around sharing our prayer requests, he opened up for the first time and said, hey, you could pray for me. My dad has been ill for a while. And I don't know if he's going to get better. The doctors aren't hopeful. But can you just pray for him that he'll get better? So we prayed for him. But it was the end of summer, and I went back to college in Champaign-Urbana. And about two weeks in, I got a phone call from my sister who said, hey, uh, that, that boy that you knew, that student, uh, his dad just passed away. So I went up to the funeral and, and I just hugged him, didn't, didn't know what to say, went back down to college, and two weeks later, his mom dies as well. We don't know why. Uh, we could speculate, but she passes away. And this is like every kid's worst nightmare to lose both of your parents, but lose them when you're still in high school and in a short period of two weeks. At this point, I have no clue what to do. You know, I go back up and I go to his mom's funeral, and I don't know what to say anymore. Obviously, I'm, I'm still a young, immature college kid trying to pretend like I'm mature and care for him. But I said, like, how are you doing? In the uncertainty of what's next for your future, some ways you're an orphan, who's going to parent you, be your guardian? He had a younger brother. Like, what, what are you going to do? He said, I don't know. But you know what's been so helpful for me? I've just been singing songs in my bedroom, playing the guitar every single day, and it has fed my soul.
brothers and sisters, he was literally praising the Lord as long as he lived. He was singing praises to his God while he still had his being. In the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your pain and grief and shame and fears and loneliness and heartache, what we're given here in these Hallel songs, these five last songs, is the opportunity to yet praise our God because he is worthy, even with our broken hallelujahs. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And we thank you that even when it's so hard to give you praise, in your words you have given us words to say, to sing, to cry out. That even though we might not feel like it, even though our hearts and our mouths don't want to pay lip service to it, Lord, you use these words to shape us and form us that even in the midst of brokenness, Lord, we can still cry out to you and give praise because you are worth it. You are the creator. You are the sustainer. You are our liberator. You are the one who has given us freedom. You are the one that bore the vengeance that was ours. And you suffered the hands of man and on the cross for us. So, Father, I pray that we will be able to look to you for hope, for joy, for sustenance and strength. So that, Lord, even in the midst of what life gives us, Lord, we could be able to say praise the Lord and sing praises to you, O oh, my soul. May that be true of us. Give us what we need. Give us the courage to do so this week and forth. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue our worship, we have the opportunity not only to sing songs, to, be, to hear the word, but also to confess our faith together. And we've been using the Heidelberg Catechism uh, that we find here, question number 31. Uh, these words and these confessions have been put together uh, for generations upon generations, our early church fathers. And they're this distilled, systemized, systemized way for us to be able to uh, profess what we believe. And so I'm going to uh, ask you this question, and you can follow along in your, in your bulletin or on the screen, um, but it's just another reminder of who Christ is and why he is worthy to be able to sing praises to him. Why is Jesus called Christ that is anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God Concerning our redemption, our only high priest, who by the unsacrifice of his body has redeemed us, and who continually intercedes for us before the Father, and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit, and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Amen. To come to the table, we have the opportunity to set our eyes on the one who is worthy. He not only liberates us from our sin and bondage of worshiping and trusting.